Welcome to episode 19 of the Flask for Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, Patrick and I are interviewing Arfan Smith, editor-in-chief for the Journal of Open Source Software and leader of the Data Science Mission Office at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. Hi, Arfan. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me on. With both of these titles, what does normal workday look like for you? And what are your responsibilities when leading the Data Science Mission Office? Yeah, my roles are pretty different. So that's kind of fun, but can also be a challenge sometimes. So my day-to-day job is we are a nonprofit uh, US-based organization. We're actually in Baltimore on the East Coast uh, on the Johns Hopkins campus. And we, we basically are a contractor to the US government and we almost exclusively work for NASA on uh, civilian uh, astrophysics uh, science missions. So the organization I was set up uh, that I work for was set up to operate the Hubble Space Telescope, which we still do today. And we will be operating uh, future missions such as the James Webb Space Telescope. So we have We have a lot of uh, data archives here. So we uh, store, process and store data and serve it back out to the community. So we have quite a sort of community focused mission, but there's sort of the day to day mechanics of just running uh, that data processing infrastructure, sort of all the sort of data engineering and trying to make more sophisticated analyses possible with the data. That's where the sort of data science uh, side of things comes in. But there's a lot of day-to-day work that we do in order to serve a global astrophysics community. So my job day-to-day is to oversee, I oversee data management development and operation so building new things and keeping the lights on for for all of the major missions that we have so um, that's um, that includes things like hubble and, and future missions such as jwst but also missions like kepler uh, which has now recently closed out uh, tess uh, which is a new mission which um, are looking for exoplanets uh, so planets going around stars uh, other than our own sun that kind of thing so yes, that's my that's my space telescope hat, and I could say more about a Joss as well, but or we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, as you said, you're a subcontractor for NASA. Uh, are you in charge of planning the observations, like deciding on the orientation of Hubble for how long and which direction to look at? Or so that is not my job. And as an organization, though, we d- we are um, we we are sort of very involved in that process as well. So we actually convene the time allocation process as it's called in astronomy so if you and i wanted to use hubble we would write a proposal which would be peer-reviewed and that process uh, is a process that we convene so on behalf of nasa we we don't do the reviews ourselves we convene the reviews so we fly people in to be on review panels and 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 so we sort of manage that process so that's one of the things we do then when people are you know awarded time to use Hubble, we help, we work very closely with those teams to plan their observations and then ultimately schedule them. Um, so that's another part of the organization, which we sort of call flight, flight operations and planning. And I don't see much of that world. I see the data, I, I sort of, my interaction with the mission is once uh, the data has been received and then what happens with it after that. So nothing I can do can break the spacecraft, which helps me sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You only analyze the data after the fact. Exactly, yeah. Besides your work in astrophysics, over time you built and helped to start a couple of academic journals. How many journals were you involved with? Yeah, I've been involved with, I think, four 
I'm just trying to count. Uh, so I've, I've, I've definitely, um, one project I was involved with, uh, built a lot of the infrastructure for is a, is a project that's still going on, which is called the Journal of Brief Ideas. So this is a very small, lightweight journal that where you're limited to 200 word sort of abstract length submissions almost. Um, so the idea here is that sometimes you just want to share an idea with the world, even if you're not going to sort of execute on it sort of so you know you maybe you don't have time or you just want to say here's a funny thing like if the following things were true then i predict x maybe you just want to write that down and share that with the world so that's been going a few years that's still running um, i don't edit that i just um i, I built it with a, a friend of mine and, and that just continues to run um it's been running a good few years another journal i've been involved with is the open journal of astrophysics which is still running and actually is having a bit of a resurgence they've moved on to platform called scholastica which i wish was open source but it isn't and so they're they're being quite successful they're doing pretty low cost publishing uh, but they're using this platform called scholastica so i've sort of helped them a little bit with a few sort of boring things like metadata generation and stuff like that occasionally but i'm not day-to-day involved with that and then and then the journal of open source software is by far the sort of most successful journal that i've created and, and there's a sister journal to that the journal of open source education which i'm involved with as well in a technical capacity but i'm not in the editorial team of that do any of these journals have an impact factor calculated for them? They do not. Not yet? Not yet. Um, the impact factor and more generally sort of the way that scholarly publishing works is all a little bit sort of cloak and dagger as far as I can tell. You know, you get an impact factor at some non-determined determined sort of point in the future where, you know, people are citing you and the journal keeps coming up and, you know, impact factors are assigned by commercial companies yeah and so let's just say that journals launched by those companies get impact factors quickly <laughs> journals not launched by <laughs> journals not launched by them get impact factors at at some point in the future so there are some things that you have to do to make it possible to be indexed by products like scopus and web of science and actually some of that we're only just getting to now with joss and so, because it does come up, there are, this is something I'm sort of, I sort of feel a little bit gross talking about impact factors, but I feel that, that they are important. They are real. It's a real thing. And so there's sort of, there's a sort of harsh realities of the world in which you exist in. If you're a publishing a journal and you sort of want to make, I want to, I don't, I would like to remove as many barriers as possible for potential authors and impact factor is one of them. So I get an email probably once a month from somebody saying, Hey, I can't submit to your journal unless you are indexed in Scopus and have an impact factor. What's the plan? And right now I just have to say, sorry, we're working on getting indexed. I can't tell you when we'll get an impact factor. Um, I can tell you that we probably won't promote it very heavily when we do, because that's not what we're trying to get done. But I, I recognize it's, um, it's important. To some people yeah uh, it's a it's a necessary evil for grant submission sometimes exactly exactly and then you know there's only so much you can do to change the world right yeah <laughs> maybe i know i know with plan s there's uh, an attempt to eventually remove the impact factors from uh, grant evaluation but we'll see that's long term yeah i think that's a long-term problem yeah what does it take to start and establish an academic journal? Yeah, good question. A few things. I mean, you need to, I think, assemble a good editorial team. 
uh, I would actually say that I think um, from my understanding, really a journal is actually the editorial team that, you know, your ability so the sort of credibility of the publication really resides on how the journal behaves and sort of, you know, the ethics, of course, of how you work, but also by proxy, the reputation of those individuals who've said that who volunteer to edit for the journal. And so I think you need an editorial team. You need to decide a scope for submissions, like what kind of papers are you going to publish? I think that matters um, so that authors get an idea of, is this the right place for me? And I think you need to, so that sort of gets into sort of defining the mission for like why this journal exists with respect to other publications. Then the sort of the technical sides of things, which is sort of how, how are you going to actually, what, what does it look like to submit? What's the submission format? Where are you going to do reviews? What's your process for a review? What's your editorial decision-making process? All the sort of mechanics, some of that's technical, some of it's really just sort of governance and how you how you decide that the journal wants to behave and then there's the stuff about sort of integrating with the what i would call the sort of wider scholarly ecosystem which is things like dois metadata that go with those doi registrations registering with organizations like crossref making sure that you archive the papers with a third party like clocks or portico so that if the journal ever goes offline that the papers will still be available the sort of i would say the, those latter things uh those uh the crossref and the archiving are are very important for um things like being indexed in scopus or google scholar that kind of thing they're less important if you just want to review and publish stuff as a community so if you for example wanted to run a journal that actually was just a um, for a small conference and you just wanted to publish a proceedings, you could get away with doing, not doing some of that stuff, but we're trying to be, we're trying to be a, a viable venue for people who really actually want to put a paper on their resume and say, I wrote this, I did this. Um, and, and so the primary sort of mission of JOS is to provide a mechanism for career credit for people writing software in academic situations and so making it possible for people to making the journal as sort of conventional as possible in the sense of are the dois cross-ref dois are the other as the journal index that kind of thing um that's that's a, that's very important to us but it's less important if you depending on what kind of publication you were trying to create i guess okay you talked about the editorial team. Uh, once you have assembled the editorial team uh, and like the journal itself, uh, the, the, the physical organization, all the software, all the structure, uh, how do you get recognition? How do you find your audience? How do you start finding others? And how does it all start? Because without any submission, without it being known as a journal, it doesn't start itself. Yeah, I mean, that's completely fair. I mean, I, I so when I, um, when I started thinking that Joss needed to exist. So I hadn't even really started writing code and because I built, continued to build a lot of the underlying infrastructure uh, that we use. I was uh, actually working at GitHub at the time and I was trying to work out how to do something that would really, really help people who, um, you know, who are writing open source but found themselves, you know, in academic positions and needed a, a quick, a quick way to get, a paper for their work. And so I started talking to some people I knew just 
close colleagues or collaborators. And I, I just started saying, you know, what about if there was a journal that looked a little bit like this? And, and you know, I started to write up. I think I wrote the announcement blog post that I have on my personal blog. This is something GitHub used to do. And I know, I think a lot of companies do this these days. You almost, you start with the sort of press release for what you're trying to do. So you explain a lot of the why and the sort of purpose behind the journal. And then you say, you backtrack from that as to like, well, what, what do we actually need to build? And so I started to circulate the idea uh, with a few people that I know who are still, uh, many of those are still on the editorial team and many of them were on the initial editorial team. And, you know, it, you know, some people I was talked to would say, this is really cool. Can I be an editor? And I'd say, oh, uh, well, if we do it, sure. Let, you know, definitely. We'd love to have you on board. So a lot of people, uh, I think it resonated with people that I talked to. And so I, I, I actually, this is very embarrassing. I can't remember how many editors we started with. Uh, I can probably look that up. But let's say it was eight or something like that. You know, it actually wasn't that hard to assemble that team. And so initially, that initial editorial team, a couple of the editors submitted papers. And one of those uh, was uh, um, like Jake Vanderplas, who's pretty uh, high profile in the sort of scientific Python ecosystem. Uh, He's at Google these days. But he was, you know, he published a paper there and, you know, tweeted about it. And we did, you know, promoted that over social media. And honestly, we didn't. Within, you know, we had submissions, I would say we had 10 submissions in the first two weeks. Yeah. And that was just from people who were like, oh, this is cool. I'll try it. Um, And, you know, because the overhead to writing a paper was so very low, people were willing to give it a shot. And um, yeah, it was, it, it, it didn't take long before we had had a reasonable number of submissions and then since then um, more we've been more deliberate in the future uh, since then about finding new editors we we generally you know we put out a formal call for new editors last year and we had a lot of interest um, i think we had 40 or 50 people apply and i think we brought on board about 10 of those we just didn't need that many editors but we're now up to like 28 editors and we're currently publishing uh, just over a paper a day so yeah yeah it, it was i mean you know i knew i guess the short version of this is i knew a lot of people who were equally frustrated with the current status quo and were motivated to try something different Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was easier to start a journal in that field than, let's say, 100th journal in psychology or mechanical engineering or, I don't know, a field that are already saturated with other opportunities. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't give you a smart answer on how to do that, I don't think. Um, I mean, but at the same time, if you could find an editorial team of a few colleagues who have reasonable reputations in your field and are motivated to promote it, then that's probably all you need to start. One interesting question, especially for early career researchers, is that most of these new journals are really nice because they promote open access or you can do something new you cannot do with um, long existing journals. But on the other hand, everything is about impact factor because I heard from some students they wanted to go to a really new, cool open access journal, but the supervisors were telling them probably it's not a good idea as a young researcher, you should go to these highly impact factor ranked journals. So what would you say to one of these students? Yeah, that's a great question. Basically, I would tell people to be selfish. Um, I think you've got to do whatever you need to do in your in your field and career. I don't want to, you know, it scares me the idea that I might hold people's career success in my hands so i you know i'm nervous about that and i think it's i think it's very complex 
question and it depends on the field. So I think, so this comes up in astronomy. Uh, this is a field I, you know, I have an astrophysics background and the people ask me in astronomy, should I publish in JOS or should I publish in the astrophysical journal, which is one of the most uh, high profile journals in astronomy and i say do you have the time to write a full paper in app j if you do you should publish there without question i think that is a a paper in app j is worth more than a paper in joss to your career that said what what i think we see in joss is a lot of stuff that would not otherwise get published an example of that might be Say I've I've published some papers already on some method and I've published some new results and I would like to get one more publication for my resume, then Joss is a good spot then for you to publish in because, you know, it, the overhead of publishing is low. Um, if you have good documentation, you can produce a paper in an hour and then it's a, it's a sort of low cost for the author and it's low cost you know, it's low cost in terms of effort and well, and zero dollar cost in terms of uh, for APCs for the authors. So, so it's, it's free. It's very low cost to publish. And so, you know, I basically would encourage people to not sort of trade a, a really high profile, impactful publication for a Joss one, because I don't think I don't think that's the responsible thing to do, especially if you're early career. That said, if you have the time, I think it's a great venue for getting one more paper. The other thing is that, you know, we don't, we're not doing exactly the same thing, right? So we review software and we have a review process that's designed to improve the uh, usability and the quality of the software that's being submitted. So that is of benefit to authors too. And so one of the things I'm most excited about and what we're doing right now is we're actually just starting to uh, try out some partnerships with existing journals where we do two, two papers go through at the same time. So you would submit to, for example, the Astrophysical Journal, and you would submit to Joss, and you would have two papers that go out together. And uh, so, and we do a software review and publish a Joss paper, and AppJ publishes a an Astrophysics paper. But these papers cite each other, and they're they're linked in the in the metadata. And so, I think that's a good alternative as well, because I actually think that Joss is offering something that you can't get in other journals, which is a sort of a, a review of of the software, which is actually something that people care a lot about. Okay. We already talked about a lot about JOS, the Journal of Open Source Software. But yeah, what is your short 30-second elevator pitch for this journal? Uh, yeah, good question. I think my elevator pitch is something like if you write software as part of your day job and it's open source and you'd like to get some credit for that work, academic credit, then you should publish in JOS. Also, it's a great way to get a a review from a third party for the sort of usability and the quality of the documentation. So yeah, something like that. Obviously I need to work on that. <laughs> Besides what we already spoke about, was there other initial intents leading to the creation of this different kind of journals? You know, you, I know you talked about the fact that you were at GitHub and you thought that scientific software needed more recognition, but beside that, was there any other intent? I guess one motivation is I, I would like there to be more high quality open source software in academia. And so a secondary mission, but a very important one is that I think JOS is a good way to improve the standard, uh, whether that's sort of in terms of sort of, you know, 
how well tested or how well documented a piece of software is. But I think it's a good way to uh, incentivize open source software in in lots of different research fields. Um, so I care a lot about that. It's just that that's not the prime mission. The prime mission is one of author credit. Okay. When you launched just were there challenges that you were not expecting uh, from the get-go or you all you knew ahead of time what were the challenges that you needed needed to tackle for the project to succeed? Yeah, some of the challenges, I think our biggest challenges have been maintaining an evolving sort of definition of the scope of the journal. I think what do you mean by research software is very subjective depends on the editor and so we've worked a lot on our submission criteria so stuff that has been published papers that were published early in joss today we wouldn't publish because they're now out of scope i think that's okay i think that's part of an evolving continually sort of refining the definition of what we want the journal to publish the other thing is uh, scaling the process so initially It was me and some editors. So I've been editor-in-chief since day one. And iterating on the process of like how we assign papers to editors, how we assign reviewers to papers, and, and, uh, and, and sort of the mechanics, the editorial flow, I guess, both in terms of how we think it should work and the realities of everybody's busy and everybody's volunteering their time so trying to keep papers moving through the system is a continual problem. And that's partly also because we run it on GitHub. And so a notification about a Josh review is mixed up with your other 600 notifications <laughs> on GitHub. So it's, so we're hampered by that. Let's, let's just put it that way. That's not, that doesn't help us. Okay. To reach a paper, there's probably a lot of automation involved in the publication process. How do you manage all of that and get everything done? Yeah, so actually, that's probably one of the most important things that I think we've done as a team is that the editorial process now is is heavily, heavily automated. So I've written a little bit about this recently. I've been trying to call it sort of chat ops for publishing. If you're familiar with the idea of chat ops, this idea that you can ask robots to do things you know in a slack thread or on, on github it's it's um it's something that very heavily influenced the way that github worked and i was definitely heavily influenced by that when i was when i was setting up joss originally so since day one we've had this robot called whedon that helps us do some of the sort of editorial work on the side um and as the journal has grown and as the sort of number of papers has grown and and as i've got less inclined to do some of this work myself we've been successful in automating almost all of the work behind a paper now so that includes you know compiling the paper using tools like pandoc submitting metadata to crossref up updating the the joss website when papers are accepted sending out reminders to reviewers, um, tweeting the paper when it's accepted. You know, all of these things now are commands that um, are issued by editors or, or, um, or the editor-in-chief, uh, the sort of that team, all issued in, in, in the open on the review thread on GitHub. So, yeah, automation has been a very big part of what we do, um, and that's uh, uh, definitely allowed us to scale in a major way. And not a tweeting journal. <laughs> 
Yeah, which actually turns out to be wildly popular because, of course, you know, papers are published and the authors and the reviewers are excited and then there's Whedon tweets the link to the paper and then, you know, the authors almost always jump on that and retweet it. So it's, you know, it's why wouldn't you promote your paper that's just been published? So that that actually is quite... We actually only shipped that like last month. It was a long time coming, um, but that's proven pretty popular. So most of our listeners know a traditional submission process. What does the submission process look like for authors to choose? And what is required for a valid submission? Yeah, so the submission process is fairly lightweight. So we ask that, firstly, the software has to be open source, and that's by the as defined by the OSI. So there has to be an open source license. And then you fill in a short form on the website, on the JOS website. You give us the location of the software repository. So that's like the GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket URL. We ask for a title for the paper. We ask you to agree that, you know, you're an author and that you agree to our code of conduct, that kind of thing. And then you click submit and it goes into a holding queue. So nothing happens at that stage other than the managing editor who's on rotation that week gets an email and they do a quick check to see that it's basically not spam. We don't, we hardly get any spam, to be honest. Um, we get very little. And if everything kind of checks out, then the managing editor clicks a button on our website, which then makes an issue on GitHub in a public repository called Josh Reviews. So it posts an issue there. And that's when it's so immediately that's public to the world. And we at mention the author in that issue. So the uh, the author has to include a GitHub username when they submit. Um, so then in that pre we call that a pre-review issue. So it's we're not in we're not under review. We're sort of trying to find an editor to handle it and reviewers. So at that stage we try and compile the paper. So Whedon jumps in and tries to compile a paper and sometimes that doesn't work. And so the author will often sort of fix the paper compilation in that pre-review issue, they can ask Whedon to recompile the paper. So they often work that out themselves. And then the managing editor will assign the sort of the editor for the paper. And then we try and find reviewers there, um, generally two or more. And then once we've got reviewers and an editor, the editor will create the main review issue. So we actually have a separate issue where the full review takes place. And that, again, that's another issue on GitHub. And there's che a checklist that each reviewer works through. And they're encouraged to ask questions and create issues on the repo that they're reviewing. And once we get to the end and everybody's happy, then the author is asked to create an archive of the software uh, using a service such as Zenodo or Figshare or Dataverse, post a link to that archive. Um, and the editor kind of wires that up to the paper, again, just issuing commands to Weed, and then basically pings the editorial the managing editing team to say this paper is ready to accept and then one of the editors in chief will then do the final step to to accept the paper but everything's in the open uh, after this initial check that it's a sort of valid submission so as it might be obvious we don't it's not but it's not a blind review everybody knows who everybody is and uh, that mostly works pretty well people are generally quite polite the sort of standard of discourse in a josh review is much more friendly than any reviews I've ever had for my papers that go that come with a sort of uh, anonymity. It's uh, it's quite nice to watch. 
Okay, I have two follow-up questions. What you mentioned, so you mentioned a lot of GitHub. So, can I submit my code if I host it on Bitbucket or at some public repo at my institution, or have my code to be at GitHub? No, your code can be anywhere. We have a review criteria that it has to be public, like it has to be in a repository. So it needs to be in Git or Mercurial or Subversion. It needs to be in something that's you know publicly clonable or, 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 you know, can be checked out. We also insist that, you know, that it's, there's a issue tracker that's public and, and that kind of thing. So there are some people who use institutional repositories that don't meet those criteria. Sometimes it's pretty rare actually, but it does happen. And in those situations, we, we, we ask that, you know, the authors figure out a way to make it possible for people to post issues and ask questions and that's really about making sure that the software is uh, the some support model or the, the the support the interaction with the community is defined in some way that's clear we think that's a usability concern uh, for the review and so no there's no hard dependency on github for hosting there is a hard dependency that you have to have an, a github account to submit I don't love that. I think it would be good to work out how to not have that hard dependency, but that's just a reality of where we're at. We use GitHub for the review process. So to be a participant in that process, you need to be able to answer questions. And so you need to have a GitHub account, but your software does not need to be on GitHub. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. My second follow-up question would be some of the traditional journals started to advertise with It took 90 days from submission to notification to the authors, and it took 24 days, for example, until the paper was published. Do you have some numbers for the trust journal like this, or how long does it take to get some notification about the review process, and how long does it take until my submission is published after acceptance? The notification that your submission has been received, I would say generally is under 24 hours in the sense that once somebody has done a quick check that the software is that the project is a valid submission then you get notified because you get mentioned on github and so that's usually very quick the review process i don't have very good stats on how long reviews take i should generate those those would be useful to have we published a paper about joss in a journal called peerj cs about a year ago uh, that had some of these numbers but i've don't recall exactly what what they were i mean reviews can take between days and we've had reviews that have taken a year because the submission was so problematic but the author wanted to improve the software so stuck with us we sort of have a soft we have a policy that we really don't want to reject submissions if the author is willing to do the work to improve their submission so that it can pass so sometimes that takes a year and has taken a year in the past but generally reviews are much faster i would say my guess would be our median review time is sort of two to three weeks the time between acceptance and publishing is generally hours it's very very quick um, we don't publish an issue because we're fully electronic we don't publish an issue sort of at the end of a month or anything we just we just publish as we go Okay. Compared to uh, traditional uh, scientific journals where you have a, a review on the scientific content, what does a review look like for uh, JAS? Yeah, the review is, is a combination of the you know the method. So if this is implementing some algorithm, then we you know we would obviously ask for the reviewer to verify at some level that the implementation looks correct, and so 
depending on the complexity of that, we often have a sort of a, I would say like a methods reviewer and then a sort of a open source reviewer. So somebody who's more looking at the sort of usability of installing and running the software and documentation for the API, that kind of thing. So sometimes the sort of the reviewers sort of distribute that load between them. But the, the review process is quite formulaic in the sense that there is a checklist of, I think, 18 checkboxes that each reviewer has to work through. And they tick them off. And there's guidance for what each of those checks means. So, you know, we have checks for conflict of interest, general checks about sort of where the software is hosted. Does it have a license? Are there tagged releases, versions? Is it clear that the person who's submitting the paper looks to be an author of the software? That would be important, uh, for example. And then the sort of checks on functionality for, you know, ease of installation. Does it work? Does it other functional claims of the software? Can you validate those? If there are performance claims, can you validate those? Then there's a lot of uh, sort of review items about documentation and the quality of that and then there's also some review items related to the to the soft the actual paper is it reasonably written does it capture sort of what the purpose of the software is that kind of thing um so yeah um it's it's pretty it's pretty formal in the sense that there are checkboxes that we expect people to work through and it really depends on the underlying complexity of the sort of implementation as to whether um, we we really ask people to deep dive into how something's implemented. Basically, you're you're just making sure that the the code is performed as what's written on the tin. Let's say. Yeah, I would say we're a little bit better than that in the sense that we, you know, the reviewers are asked if they can objectively verify the functionality of the software. So it's stronger than that, but I I don't know that we're stronger or weaker than any other journal in this. In, on this topic, to be honest, I think it, it often depends on the reviewer, how deep they go. But we do require them to say, I have been able to verify the functionality of the software in an, sort of, in an objective way. So that sometimes is expressed through things like unit tests or very heavily documented testing procedures that you have to go through manually. It, 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 it depends. Yeah, that's the following question I wanted to ask. So if uh, developers develop an application with with a heavily based process on test-driven development, then with unit tests for everything, it would really help your reviewers to review the application? Yeah, definitely. This is actually a thing that comes up quite a lot. We get some pushback from reviewers and some of our editorial team are, are in a different place from where I am on this question of automated tests. We do not insist that there are unit tests for the code. And this come, people flag this semi-regularly they're like why not that you, you should <laughs> and uh, where i'm at on this is i definitely think you should write tests if possible i don't think every project needs to have 100 test coverage i think that's uh i think the the certainty you think you're getting out of that is often misplaced and i'm not sure i believe that that level of coverage is entirely necessary that said i do think it helps reviewers and i do think it helps you know i think it's a good part of what we do to write unit tests and you know, hook it up to Travis or Jenkins or, you know, Circle CI, whatever. I think these are all good things to do. However, it is possible to verify the functionality of software without unit tests. And so we ask that 
reviewers can, as I said before, objectively verify the functionality. And if they can't do that, then the software doesn't pass the review. The reason that we have a softer language on that than, than some people would like us to is that this, again, comes back to what the sort of prime mission of the journal is. And the prime mission of the journal is to provide a mechanism for career credit for people writing software in academia. If the prime mission of the journal was to have high-quality, battle-hardened research software, then, of course, we would mandate unit tests and have automation in terms of continuous integration there. But that's not the prime mission of the journal, so... So we're, we're slightly softer on that than some people would like us to be. Many scientists are not programmers or computer scientists by trade. Do you also look on the quality of the code or just if there are some comments or how do you deal with this? Yeah, we do ask for people that the software is well documented. So we have a lot of review checks for, you know, the sort of installation experience is it easy to install this are dependencies defined uh, in a way that it's easy to install the, the dependencies required to run the project we you know we ask that there's documentation whether that's doc strings or whatever uh, that document the api and so i think we do a pretty good job at sort of specifying what we think is important to make a piece of software usable and and so yeah i would say that's a lot of what changes during review for our authors a lot of the time the or the reviewers will push back and say you know what this section of the code is hard to understand what's going on i think you should make a class here or you should separate these methods as it's really hard to understand what's going on or you at least need some documentation for how this method works it seems really important and it's a bit of a black box so um the reviewers do generally do a very good job of improving what i would say uh, what is often quite let's say academic code a, a lot of the reasons i think authors submit to joss is that they are trying to they're genuinely trying to improve the quality of their submission and they understand that the review process will push them to to make changes and improve their software i would say the vast majority of submissions we get there are changes either to the software or the underlying documentation for the software as a as a result of the review okay uh beside using an osi approved license is there any moral or editorial decisions regarding what kind of software could be published in jos or is it totally open to any open source software well so one thing that i think is was a little bit unclear to us initially but we've come we have a decision on this now is can i submit open source software that depends on a proprietary runtime such as matlab or idl or something like that and we do allow those submissions i'm pretty firmly in the camp that more open source software is good regardless of where you're at where your community's at in its evolution with programming languages whether they're free and open source themselves or whether they're programming languages you should buy you need to buy so that's one example of something that's a little bit controversial i think uh, some of our editors were very strongly in favor of not allowing for example matlab submissions but i'm i believe that the sort of mission around open source is inclusive of people who want to do the right thing in with with proprietary environments one thing we do though insist is that you know one one challenge is of course if you are using some proprietary runtime it might be hard to find reviewers so we often have to warn authors who are submitting where maybe they've used they're using matlab and they're re using some packages that are also closed source as well 
um, some dependencies. We, we often have to say to the authors, look, this is, in theory, we will publish this, but in practice, if we can't find reviewers, we're not, you know, that, that's going to be, that means we won't be able to publish your paper. More generally, in terms of, I think, what you're asking is, are there sort of research areas that would be not, within the sort of mission of of Joss, I think we've never had anything I would say sort of morally questionable. I think that's I think we're lucky that we haven't at this point. I could imagine us getting that kind of software and I, I don't actually know. I don't have a good answer for you because I don't think that's come up. Okay, some of the functionality you described to getting a DOI for your source code is provided by the Zenodo platform. And Zenodo for sure do not have the review process you're offering. Why was it not possible to use the infrastructure of Zenodo? Because I know Zenodo can work with GitHub because I published my open source code on GitHub with Zenodo. Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. So we do actually use Zenodo as part of our process. Zenodo is, in my mind, an archiving service. So they are archiving software repositories from GitHub or other sources and maybe other data sets and provide issuing a DOI for that. And so this is, this is all good. This is, um, this is a good service. And I was actually worked with that team to set up that service when I was at GitHub. The reason that's not completely sufficient for Joss is, uh, goes back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier about what does it mean to start a journal? The DOIs that Zenodo make are data site DOIs. So they're issued by an organization called data site and they're not quite the same. And I can't tell you exactly why I don't understand this, but I just, this is what I believe to be true. They're not quite the same as DOIs that are issued through, for example, Crossref. So crossref.org is effectively a, a trade association of publishers. And they, they are generally seen as the sort of gold standard in terms of DOIs for papers and journals and other media, similar media to that. Um, so we do use Zenodo in the sense that we recommend that authors, when they get to the end of the review, we want there to be a copy of the software that was reviewed associated with that paper in perpetuity. And so the way that we encourage authors to get that copy and to archive that copy is with Zenodo. And then they tell us what that DOI for the software archive is. And we include that, we bundle that up with the paper, but fundamentally they're sort of somewhat different in the, in the, uh, the sort of DOI and metadata layer for describing the, the object. And so for that reason, we, we don't use Zenodo DOIs for the journal papers for the journal of brief ideas. It does use just Zenodo DOIs, but I think that's not actually good enough for a, a, a real, and I'm doing air quotes, a real uh, academic journal. Uh, in February 2019, JAS uh, published its 500th article after two years and 10 months. Uh, first of all, congratulations for that success. And so, second, why are the term paper or articles used to refer to the publication of software? Because it's kind of a release of a software, we usually say. Um, Is the act of releasing software insufficient? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, uh, that we, the Journal of Open Source Software publishes papers about software. Part of the thing that we're trying to do with the journal is work around the existing credit 
mechanisms in academia. So right now, the way, roughly speaking, to get credit as an academic is to write papers and for people to cite those papers. And that, you know, results in things like your H index uh, in the long run. So while a JOS paper is very closely associated with a piece of software and ideally a release of that software, the journal is actually publishing papers about software because we want people to be able to cite papers and by proxy then you know we're talking about the software so i agree we could talk more about software but that goes back to we're trying to sort of blend two worlds which is we what we would really like is for people to just be able to publish software make a new release tag a release publish a new python package or whatever and just cite that in a paper but right now if you do that Number one, depending on your journal, you you simply can't cite software natively. And number two, even if you could, the people who have the power to give you things like an H-index probably aren't counting those citations. And that that's some other work that I've done on software citation, but that's uh, separate from JOS. Speaking of software release, uh, how do you deal with new versions? Because an article is a piece, it is an artifact of the area it is, the moment it is published, but a software is uh, ever evolving. How do you manage that? Yeah, that's a very good point and something that we struggle with a little bit. So in theory, you can publish multiple papers in JOS about the same piece of software. This has happened, I think, twice. So an example would be, you know, a team publish a paper, then they do a bunch of work and they have a new, what they consider major release of the software. And then the, there's a, another JOS submission with a review just of that new functionality. So that's happened, as I say, uh, a couple of times. Um, we, we actually very early on when thinking about the journal discussed this idea of could you have a JOS paper associated with a pull request? How fine-grained could you go? And, and we, we're definitely open to that idea. In reality, it doesn't come up as a question as often as I would expect, um, but, it, but it does come up. Um, and I think this is a generic problem for papers about software. By definition, the paper that you're currently writing, especially if it takes months and months to write and then months and months to go through review, you might have a new release and you'll almost certainly have new authors of the software that aren't on that paper. And so I agree, software is alive, especially successful, long-term, long-running open source projects. You know, the people who are authors, uh, that list is continually evolving. And I don't have a great answer for you other than to say I, I, I recognize it and we do, we do support repeat publications. We don't have a problem with that. That said, Lots of authors actually don't want two papers about the same package because now you get into problems of like, what should I cite? And then citation dilution, which is this kind of stupid artifact of the way that we count citations. So there's, there's all sorts of problems that software introduces uh, or software papers introduce if you, if you push on that. And if a team was to decide to uh, release papers for every release of the software that they have, uh, wouldn't that create an unnecessary burden on the editorial team? It would. And honestly, I think, I mean, that's a great point. I'm not sure we would actually want that. Um, so I think if a team started to do that, we would probably have to work out a better a better situation for all of us. Uh, because I agree that would be that would be unsustainable for us. Okay, let us speak about funding. How much funding was needed to publish these 500 papers and run the submission system? 
We are running at about $3 per paper in terms of fixed costs that we have no control over. So that's like website hosting for the JOS website. Issuing, registering DOIs costs money. It's about a dollar, a US dollar per DOI. So there are some fixed costs associated with that. And there's actually, we've got some pretty detailed description of that on the on the JOS website. So you can look at that if you're interested. But more generally though, we have had, also had a, a small grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, which we used to generalize some of the tooling that we built when we knew we wanted to set up the Journal of Open Source Education. So when we sort of initially built the tools to run JOS, it was very, lots of things were sort of hard coded for JOS. And then we, 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 yeah, we spent some money generalizing the tool chain, but in terms of total income ever to the project, it's about $20,000 and we haven't spent all of that. Um, the money that we did spend was on um, was was to hire you know an, a contract engineer to do to do some of that work. So most traditional publishers use the costs of running the journal, the submission page, and something like this as an excuse to ask for the enormous subscription fees or really high open access charges for an article. Do you think they could do the same and run this journal on a small budget as you? Or why do they claim they have to do these enormous prizes? Yeah, um, this is a good question. And I don't know. I think, um, I mean, we actually wrote a longer form blog post thinking through what would it cost in sort of in response to the Plan S guidance coming in the EU about being transparent about the cost of publishing. So we tried to work through what would it cost if we paid the editorial team, if we paid with some sort of certain level of uh, infrastructure maintenance, what would it look like if we had some additional sort of staff costs, basically, and assuming that we published 300 papers a year. And we still came out at an APC of about $140 per paper, which is still vastly lower than something like you know pnas or nature or ieee which are sort of thousands or tens of thousands um for a gold open access paper so i think some of it is just i think these organizations are big and expensive to run and we are small and cheap uh we're you know we have no full-time staff we have in fact no paid staff at all so there are some, you could imagine, paying for some of what we do, and, and we, we might go in that direction, um, but we both so far haven't needed to. I think some of the way that we work, um, working openly allows you to leverage platforms such as GitHub, or you know we could run equally easily on something like GitLab. So there's some cost savings there. And also, I think there's some real fixed costs that they have as an organization that we simply don't. And I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic to that. And then I think there's just simply that academic publishing is a very high profit margin industry. And uh, and so I think they're making a lot of money. And I think that's something to know, I guess. I would like to see lower cost publishing. Um, I'm, I um, subscribe to the things like the Elsevier boycott. I won't publish, review or edit for Elsevier journals. That's not an organization I want to support. I think there's the combination of factors. I think the more experimentation we see with with academic publishing, the more we can have people trying to run ultra-low cost journals like JOS, I think this will naturally lead to the sort of questions that you're asking. And I think they're good ones. One more question with respect to this topic. Do you fear that a traditional publisher could 
try to compete with your journal by creating another similar journal or just copying your idea and ask people to pay hundred or one thousand dollars to do the same thing? I don't fear it. It's actually happened already. So actually last month Elsevier launched a journal called Software Impacts, I think it's called, which is very similar to Joss. I mean, I wouldn't go as far to say that they've just cloned it in the sense of trying to do exactly what we're doing, but it it is very similar. And their APCs, I think, are two or three hundred dollars right now. And I think that's an introductory rate. I think it's likely I think they've said it will be a thousand dollars afterwards. And they, as far as I can tell, are not doing any of the important and interesting things that Joss does, which is review the software and make sure that we've got better software going out into the world. But so, you know, they, I think they're offering, they're charging more for a worse service. Uh, and I feel very confident that Joss is, um, is a better, is a better journal for authors. And I think they're going to struggle. Uh, I think they're going to struggle to find reviewers. We've had, I think, 630 people review for Joss so far. People enjoy reviewing. Authors like being reviewed. It's a collaboration. And I think, and that's partly just because we're working like an open source project, like an open source community. Um, and I don't, I think it's essentially impossible for Elsevier to have the same type of journal and the same sort of culture and, and uh, experience for reviewers and authors, given given the way that they work. I, I mean, I, 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 wel I welcome the competition. I, I think they're going to... Um, I think they're going to struggle. Well, they probably won't. They'll probably publish plenty of papers, but I'm not trying to solicit their papers. I'm, uh, I, but I'm sure they're trying to solicit Joss's potential submission. So, yeah. So it's already happened. <laughs> okay. We talked about uh, open source and your feeling about that, but we'll, we'll get into that uh, more deeper with a lighter topic. What is your vision about FLOSS and its importance for, for the openness of science? I think free and open source software in many ways embodies how I would like to see science done, both in terms of the transparency of how software is implemented. So the availability of source code and the permissions around reuse, the sort of licensing bit of software. I think that's all important. And I think that's how I would like to see more people do their science, you know, in a sort of more reproducible, transparent way. And actually, not just science, just you know, research in general. And then I think perhaps more excitingly, or, or at least as important, is the collaborative model lots of open source communities take for granted, which is the best open source projects have a respect for their users and people sort of consuming the software, but also people who might want to contribute and join that community. And I think that those sort of the way those collaborations can work is something that I think also could be modeled and can work in, in academic research too. And so I think it's a thing we should, we should um, steal all the best bits. I think there's lots to copy and lots to, there's lots to use. And I think this honestly is why for many researchers who end up getting interested in, in open source software or get interested in software and then sort of by, over time get really interested in the sort of open source software being cr created in in their field i think they they bridge these two worlds right they're in the academic collaborations and maybe they work for a supervisor who is very 
you know, doesn't want to work openly or, or transparently. And then they see this other world. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for cross pollination there of those ideas and, and, and transfer of practices. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's uh, I think it embodies a lot of how I would like to see research done more more generally. Yeah, I think there's many parallels to be drawn between open source and research that that stuff could be transferred between both domains. Yeah, exactly. And uh, to take the devil's advocate side, uh, do you think that using floss may have negative impact or can have negative impact on science? Good question. I'm, I'm trying to think if I can think of any negatives. <laughs> um, I would say that I think there's a potential problem if... You know, I don't think open source is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So I, you could imagine some of the bad bits of open source bleeding over into academia, but I'm not sure that would be bad for the scientific results. It might be bad for people. But yeah, I can't think of any obvious downsides. Maybe. Do you, do you have any? I'd love to know some. If you, this a, do you have any that you sort of think worry about? Main ones I would say if you don't have to be to, to get too religious, like uh, the war on like nano versus vim, like we don't want that. But in, in, there is still that kind of debates in science. Right. We have those, but differently, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. No. Good question, though. You also just you must not be blind to other alternatives. You must be open to everything to be a good researcher. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Yeah. 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 I agree. But I don't think floss prevents being open to other other things no i i actually think that this is actually one of the things that i see as a strength is that and this comes up a little bit in joss where people say i have written a piece of software you know let's say i have taken a package that was written in fortran and i have re-implemented it in python and c or something let's imagine and i think the sort of the diversity in terms of implementations and languages in Floss is actually is an enormous strength. A good example would be, you know, go and look online for packages that can talk to the GitHub API. <laughs> you will find so many, right? Like you'll find 50 in JavaScript. You'll find probably six or seven in Ruby. I mean, Ruby is a smaller number because GitHub released OctoKit very early. So, you know, you'll find it collection in python and in r and and that that's good i think that diversity is is a strength yeah it's not like a single pillar can collapse the whole building uh, yeah sometimes that comes up as is this a valid submission to joss because you know we sort of people will say well is this a substantial contribution to the field and i'll say yeah re-implementations are important because maybe i don't maybe i'm doing everything in julia these days and i don't want a python implementation that's useful But also sometimes this comes up in discussions with academics where they'll say to me, yeah, I mean, we're doing all this work publishing all these open source packages, but, but what if people stop using Python? I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that probably will happen one day and that's okay. Uh, like publishing packages in the open and working openly doesn't make that worse than having a proprietary runtime. Like I don't, I don't think there's a positive or negative there i think it's sort of neutral so anyway it, it does come up a bit as a people are a little bit i guess concerned sometimes about 
what does it mean if they push more and more of their work open? Are there some sort of dependencies? Are people going to expect support from them in the long run? I think that's a concern I do hear about. But I, but again, I think there's ways of signaling that you're publishing something and you have no intent on supporting it. Like people do that all the time. We're almost done with the interview and we'll proceed with some of our classic quick questions that we ask all of our interviewees. For the next question, we'll take one subject out of the pool of subject because uh, all of our recent uh, interviewees answered about the, the LIGO project. Uh, but what in recent years, what do you think was the most notable scientific discovery beside LIGO? I would say, well, from recent memory, the imaging of the uh, of the black hole, I think, was huge. And uh, so I think the Event Horizon Telescope and that result was pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm sure there are more, but I'm failing to think of good ones. But it's not LIGO, so... <laughs> good. And what is your favorite text processing tool? My text processing tool? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I use Atom mostly. Or do you mean like for like scripting? Do you mean like a text editor or... I want this to be as vague as possible. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, sorry. So, text processing. Well, let's say I use Atom to write code. And then when I have to write documents, I generally write in Markdown and often then use Pandoc to convert that into other formats. And if I'm forced, uh, I will write LaTeX still. Uh, it's generally my collaborators that will force me to do that. Uh, <laughs> and... And uh, if absolutely forced to, we'll use things like uh, Google Docs and Word. Sometimes my day job requires me to use such technologies. Unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> Is there anything else we forgot to ask you about? Is there anything you would like to share with us? Uh, I guess one thing I did forget to say is that part of what we do at Space Telescope is release a lot of open source tools to the community. And that's actually a big part of my job is thinking about how to sustain that those tools and, and generate community interest around those. So it seems like a relevant part of my of my job that I completely forgot to mention. So, so that will conclude all of our questions for today. Thank you, Arfan, for your time in this interview. Uh, for our listeners, what are the best way to contact you? Yeah, you can find me online as uh, Arvon on Twitter and GitHub. So A-R-F-O-N. That's uh, one of the fortunate parts of having an unusual name. You can generally get handles that are just your name. And then I have a very rarely updated blog at Arvon.org. Um, but those are, those are generally... Good ways to find me. Okay, thanks. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore DBrass or both of us at Philosopher Science. Also, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. You can help us by recommending our show to your friends and colleagues. Our website is on a new location. We moved it to flossforscience.com, where you can find all of our contact informations and a link to our GitHub page, where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our episodes or find the RSS feed to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in your next episode. Bye. Bye.